0: Welcome in to a new decade edition of the Locked On Knicks podcast. It's 2020, but we're still feeling a little bit nostalgic. We're going over the five best Knicks of the last decade, Alex.
1: Yep, and there's some familiar names certainly on this list. Uh, one six-man-of-the-year winner, one guy who eventually got traded, another guy who eventually got traded, <laughs> another guy who eventually left the team and another one who got traded so yeah there's lots of lots of guys that ended up getting traded from the knicks but lots of guys that i think hold various levels of special places in knicks fans hearts so we will get into that and more next on locked on knicks
0: you are locked on knicks your daily new york knicks podcast part of the locked on podcast network your team every day Knox foul from behind at
1: one. What he does is contagious. Robinson with a catch and slam. Across the lane to Trier. Trier drives down. Become infectious. Become infectious.
0: You are Locked On Knicks, your daily New York Knicks podcast. Thank you for joining us in 2020. Wow. I can't believe we finished the full decade of Locked Knicks. I guess we only really came in at the end, but it, it was, it was a pretty good run. I'm Gavin Shaw across the river. He is Alex Wolf. Alex, we already went through, uh, 10 through 6 of the best players of the decade for the New York Knicks. Just a quick review. Um, I had Marcus Morris at 10. You had Tim Hardaway at that spot. And then we had a consensus 9 through 6, Jason Kidd, Mitchell Robinson, Jeremy Lin, Raymond Felton uh before we get into the top 5 did you did you get any pushback any any DM saying that's ridiculous how did you not have Alexi Shred at number 7 or something along those lines mm-hmm. or, or was it pretty good
1: I actually didn't get any uh so you know I I feel good about it I don't <laughs> uh I haven't heard from anybody pushing back on the list yet but Maybe we'll see. Maybe today's will piss somebody off. I don't know. I, I, I don't think our list today is that controversial. I feel like most people would probably agree on this, but I guess we'll see. Maybe the three and four spot will, depending on who you talk to, get some pushback. But, um, yeah, I, I didn't get any, did you?
0: No, except for my, my friend group was, was pretty insistent that, uh, Steve Novak deserved it over Marcus Morris and, I, I called them idiots to their faces, but I, I sort of understand the argument in in that if you wanna like sort of make the case like all right, who are you gonna remember from this decade? Like obviously Novak just because of the team he was on is going to have a lot more signature moments than someone like Morris. But uh, if you look at the two, Morris is just a far better player. And to me, that was the biggest factor. So that's that's my philosophy. If you if you agree with their school of thought, which I'm sure out of our millions of listeners, uh, some people do. But regardless, let's move on to today's list. At number five, we have J.R. Smith. And Alex, I'm going to let you get into J.R. Smith a little bit. He, he really was one of my favorite Knicks over the last decade And I was just going back through his game log this morning, and I I don't think I totally appreciated just how special he was. I mean, not necessarily during the playoffs where he really, really struggled, but going into the playoffs, this is a guy who just had some monster stretches for the Knicks in um, late March, had three straight 30-point games, culminating in a 37-point effort against the, I think, then Bobcats and i i mean there there were just times where i can't remember if mello was out or injured where he just absolutely carried this team and the, in that sense i think was, was just sort of the ultimate six man and had one of the better six men seasons of any player in the league this decade
1: yeah i know i like you're strictly talking about the 12 13 season and obviously that's the one that we're that you know we would most judge him by uh, there was other good moments too, like the two straight game winners that he had at one point that season. That was pretty magical. Um, you know, he just, he, he was awesome that whole 12-13 season. Probably, uh, I'm going to say probably my favorite player off that team that year because I just remember getting really attached to him that year for whatever reason. Like he was, it, it was like the best possible version of JR Smith. He was, like, fun and funny without being destructive to himself and the team, (laughs) which, you know, you can't say about all the other seasons that he was with the Knicks. And it probably had a lot to do with the fact that they were winning so much. Uh, But, I mean, his his averages, as you said, were really impressive. Uh, He was second on the team in scoring that year, 18 points a game. Uh, He averaged five rebounds, almost three assists, about one and a half steals. He shot 36% from three, which is among one of his better numbers. Uh, and he shot it on really high volume too, uh, like almost six attempts per game. And yeah, I, I, I loved everything about his season. Obviously Mello was the star that season. And the main reason that the Knicks were as good as they were, but Jr. was like a stabilizing presence and Mello missed a few games due to injury. Um, or actually more than a few. He missed 15 because uh, he played in 67 games that year. And, I specifically remember during those times when Mello was out, J.R. was really the one that picked up the slack as far as scoring. And, you know, those two straight game winners, if I remember right, came at a time when Mello was out. Um, and, you know, J.R. played in 80 games that year, so he was relatively an Ironman. Uh, they, they only sat him for the last two games of the season, and that was just, I think, for resting purposes, and the Knicks had basically secured their playoff positioning and everything else so they decided to just kind of sit a bunch of guys down and not risk injury for their their core guys of course uh kevin garnett would have other plans and try to personally injure all of them in the the first round of the the playoffs including trying to rip Melo's arm out of its socket but uh yeah it's that season to me stands as one of one of my favorite individual Knicks season's uh, by any given player in my time as a fan of the team and uh, it'll probably stay that way for a pretty long time because there was nobody more electric and fun than JR to watch that year with all the highlight dunks and the, um, you know, the clutch shots and the fun antics, you know, like he and Steve Novak had this weirdly funny chemistry together, um, off the court. And like in the locker room and whatever. And they were like this, this like odd couple, like locker room best friends. And I don't know. He was, he was just so much fun. I, I look back very fondly on J.R. Smith strictly because of that season. And I'm even willing to overlook like some of the later seasons, like the, where he was untying the shoelaces and all that stuff, uh, just because of how good that 12, 13 season was.
0: Yeah. And I mean, if, if you want to look at his legacy, as a Nick, you can argue this decade probably only behind stat and Mello in terms of sheer offensive talent. obviously you could you could certainly make a case for the version of KP we saw at the beginning of the seventeen eighteen season where he was just ripping off thirty point game after thirty point game. but in terms of a guy who was just a high high level shooter, and I mean proved himself eventually on those Cleveland teams to be able to translate it to the playoffs, do it on the biggest stages in the biggest moments. And, and, and I mean, he was still young enough in 1213 that he had that electrifying athleticism that made him a slam dunk contest participant early in his career. And in my mind, like he was just always the perfect video game player. Like you, you took away like all the fluff and you're just like, all right, well, what is this guy's rating? Dunking the ball? What is this guy's rating? Shooting the ball? And And, and he was awesome. And for those guys, because there are a lot of dudes like that in the NBA who are just these incredible athletes, can really shoot, and for whatever reason, just never totally put it together, whether it's basketball IQ, whether it's personality issues, whether it's not having a handle. This was the time in JR's career where everything actually equaled the sum of its parts, and it turned him into, I think legitimately, the second best player on for what was long stretches that Four long stretches that season, probably the best team in the NBA, or one of the best teams in the NBA, outside obviously the Miami Heat, or probably the best team in the NBA. But right in that mix. And for a guy who at times early in his career, and certainly near the end of his career, seemed like kind of a disappointment, I mean, I think that was a really big accomplishment. The one stain on his legacy is he really did struggle in the postseason after getting off to a pretty good start. The first three games against the Celtics where he had at least 15 points in each one, um, shot at least 47% from the field in two of those three games. Um he really struggled. I'm just gonna rip through them. Last, uh, seven playoff games, three for 14, five for 13, four for 15, three for 15, four for 12, seven to 22, four for 11 four for 15. And I think as you noted last podcast, Alex, that's sort of, I mean, unfortunately going to be the legacy of that 12-13 team that when it came down to it, no one other than Mello was all that affected what it mattered most.
1: Yeah, it, it's, it's a real shame, you know, that things went down the way that they did like that. And with JR, you can even, you're even able to like pinpoint when that happened and that was in that game three against Boston when he just inexplicably decides to throw the elbow up at Jason Terry's head and uh you know I mean I, I was never a big Jason Terry fan but still you could say luckily didn't actually harm him in any way with that but threw a pretty pretty vicious elbow uh you know just trying to clear some space for himself I guess but you know, it was – after that, then the shooting percentages fell off a cliff. Um, you know, you noted all the all the various games he had. And between him and I would say Tyson Chandler as well, who – Tyson Chandler always had this way about – I mean, we'll be talking about more about him in a minute, spoiler alert, but uh, he always had a way of getting the flu at the most inopportune times during the season – and he always said that he got it from his kids or whatever. And I was like, man, can you not just like quarantine your kids for a few weeks during <laughs> yeah. the playoffs, like? Because every single year, at the at the most crucial junctures of the season, he'd get the flu. And I'm like, w- what is this crap, dude? Like, stop getting the flu, like. <laughs> and that was that happened during that Indiana series. And but on top of that, he just got you know resoundingly outplayed by Roy Hibbert that year too. Uh, so that's kind of where his legacy stands. Unfortunately, on you know again a really really great season. Uh, so, yeah. All in all, pretty it, pretty great stuff that season for the regular season and the beginning of the playoffs, and then a very uninspiring end for Jr. And then honestly, a, a pretty uninspiring end to his career in New York as well. Um, you know, his numbers weren't ever like nearly as good as that 12-13 year. Uh, he was traded partway through the 14-15 season. Uh, by Phil Jackson after kind of struggling to start that year too. And, you know, eventually just kind of has now found his way out of the league after being on Cleveland. He was on their championship team and played a role in that, but now is kind of out of the league. But, it, you know, he wasn't without his, his weird quirks in Cleveland either. And even had the, maybe one of the most memeable moments of the decade a couple years ago when he <laughs> – when, uh, with the clock winding down in the game. What was – I forget what the deal was. He didn't shoot the ball.
0: Or, yeah, George Hill missed the potential game-winning free throw. Which oh, and then he drilled it That's right. Incred- Instead I feel of like it back yeah, up. George Hill should send J.R. Smith the dessert basket every year. Because people forget George Hill, who's like a 90% career free throw shooter. If he just made the free throw, totally irrelevant. And I think that gets overblown a little bit because it's not like Smith – caught the ball under the basket with a clear layup. Like, he would have had to take some crazy fadeaway. I think the odds were against it going in. Like, obviously, he's, I mean, a lack of court awareness would be the most generous way to describe it with him not shooting. But I really think he he sort of took Hill off the hook for missing that shot.
1: Yeah, you could definitely say that. Um, (laughs) He kind of absorbed the brunt of all the criticism there, especially because it's pretty easy when you have, like, this image of LeBron with that most, I, I don't even know how to describe the face he was making, like the most disbelieving face I've ever seen, <laughs> with pointing towards the hoop, telling JR he should have shot it and whatever. At it. <laughs> yeah.
0: it,
1: it, was, it was definitely a fun meme moment of the past decade, but we're trying to focus on the positive, and yeah, like I said, I, JR, JR definitely had his, his highs with the Knicks, and that 12-13 season was the high, and it was it was made all the more impressive, you know, you get some guys that, um, you know, have six man of the year campaigns that, you know, it's like, oh, they spent like two thirds of their year coming off the bench or whatever. J.R. Smith, like, legitimately did not start one single game that whole 12-13 year and it had an enormous impact on the Knicks. So, all the more impressive, I think. I don't know. I... I Like I said, I I can't really speak too badly on him because I I always really loved J.R. Smith, even right up until the end, even when he was being a fool in New York. I I still kind of pulled for him in a weird way. So, you know, he always holds a special place in my heart, I think. Yeah,
0: I will say slight demerit for uh, bringing Chris Smith into all of our lives, but all in all. That 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 was
1: one of the... That was also, at least for Knicks fans, one of the more memeable moments of the last decade when (laughs) he... Basically, he signed the contract. Uh, it wasn't an extension, but he signed a free agent deal with the Knicks. That was kind of regarded to be a kind of a value contract at the time. And it seemingly came with the caveat that they had to sign his brother, Chris Smith, who was not an NBA player. And then <coughs> they gave him a fully guaranteed, it was like $1 million deal, and then cut him before the season to sign like an actual player. And then J.R. Smith took that as a personal slight to him. And his family and whatever, and tweeted out about how it was a betrayal and everything else. I, that was, yeah, that was that was an interesting time in Knicks history too. That was during the CAA years. Uh, I, I, yeah, essentially running the Knicks.
0: I, I will say a slight indictment on the Knicks as a franchise that J.R. Smith was able to command LeBron slash Giannis like bargaining power is uh, is not great. Uh, speaking of not great, our number four player on this list is the one the only Alex would call him a snake many of you would agree with him Chris Staps Porzingis uh Alex you know I can I can talk about how great he was at the start of the 17-18 season but I'm I'm going to leave it to you uh what do you what do you make of uh Chris Staps Porzingis a year later and I will say no pushback on your part you you were with me um belongs at number 4 on this list
1: yeah we actually we had a, I, I think when we were making the list we had kind of a a little mini debate about you know, merit and accomplishments and stuff like that. So, I mean, without giving too much away, the next guy up is one of the two, well, I guess Melo was considered a big man that year, one of the big men on the 12-13 team. I I won't spoil it just yet, like, till we get to the next spot. But, you know, there's a debate between him and the next guy on this (coughs) list, and it was like, it was kind of like, you know, stats and potential and blah, 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 versus like, you know, actual contribution to a winning Knicks team and like whatever you want to say about Porzingis, he, he never actually did contribute to any meaningful winning in New York. Um, you know, his 14 is his first season, the, um, the 15, 16 season. The Knicks obviously were just kind of bad because like they didn't have enough talent, but he showed some good flashes and, you know, things were kind of looking up that season. Um, His second season, you could argue he was kind of like stunted by Derrick Rose and Melo kind of taking too many shots and stuff like that. But ultimately that team had higher hopes and didn't realize them for one reason or another. I don't know if he was a huge part of them not realizing those hopes, but, you know, it is what it is. And then um, the 16 to 17 season, uh, that one was also kind of a – disaster, I don't know, or sorry, 15-16 was the first year, 16-17, 17-18 obviously was the one where he was kind of giving the keys towards ACL, looked fantastic for about the first 10 to 15 games of the season, had the Knicks playing probably well above their talent level, but then kind of fell off the cliff, which has always been a problem for him that, you know, once you get past the first month or two of the season, he he gets tired, so tired, as he said in his own words the one time. And, uh, you know, tends to fall off. But there's no denying, like, two things are absolutely true, and that was that Porzingis had a really tantalizing amount of talent um and really gave Knicks fans hope for the first time in, like, forever that they had drafted a new, like, uh, people really, I mean, were relating him, like, to Ewing as far as, you know, level of player that the Knicks had drafted and could potentially home grow and have around forever. And, you know, and then it all kind of came crashing down eventually uh, because of various factors. He had the the exit meeting thing with Phil Jackson, and that was because he was unhappy with how Phil treated Melo apparently. And then, you know, you also had the, the whole thing with uh, – um, Phil had apparently floated his name in trade talks, you know, in the draft that uh Jason Tatum was drafted in. I think I, I'm trying to remember if that was, I think that was the same season, Uh the same off season that he skipped the exit meeting was also the one where his name was floated uh in talks, potentially you get Jalen Brown and the pick that became Jason Tatum, which now in retrospect, that would have been a pretty damn good deal for the Knicks, <laughs> Um you know, and, and then, had some issues with Fisdale, apparently, you know, with the whole uh, sprint gate, as it was kind of called afterwards, where Fisdale said that Porzingis wasn't back to running yet last year. And then Porzingis, like five minutes later, tweets out a picture of him sprinting on a track to be like, oh, I can run. Um, and, you know, just this weird amount of uh, separation that happened between him and the Knicks front office, despite Phil Jackson being gone. And then, of course, they traded him last year. So, I don't know. Even all that aside, like, I, I think just based off the fact that the top three guys on our list accomplished more, I think. And in the case of the one guy, uh, even though he didn't play as much as we wanted, I think his peak was much higher. Uh, you know, that that kind of... It puts Porzingis where he is at four. And I, I felt comfortable, though, putting him here because as far as talent goes on the Knicks in the last decade, he was certainly one of the top talents, even if he never got to fully realize it in New York.
0: Yeah, I'm, I am I think he summed it up beautifully. I mean, no, no argument on my part. I, I thought four was the perfect spot for him. I, I just want to um, kind of flashback to the beginning of that 17-18 um, season because that, that's kind of when our hope peaked for what Porzingis could be. Uh, He scored at least 30 points in eight of the first 11 games, averaged over 30 points per game for eight of the first 11 games, and was doing so super efficiently. I mean, you look at the shooting numbers, 11 for 20, 13 for 24, 13 to 27, 14 to 26, 13 to 22, 15 to 24, 11 to 21. And and he was, I mean, and that was like on a healthy amount of threes too. And it'll be interesting to see if he can ever recapture that form in Dallas, ever recapture that form playing with uh, Luka Doncic, because this season, he, he's he been solid. He has not been nearly that efficient, and th- that's sort of been the story with him over the course of his career. He plays really, really well, and then is it sustainable that season, obviously suffering the torn ACL, and it felt like when everything was finally going for the, right for the Knicks, it just fell apart in this really – horrific way, like 11 minutes into that game against the Bucks, where he was actually having another really sterling performance, 10 points, three blocks, crashes, tears the knee, and nothing ever went right for the Knicks and Chris Stapps Since the Knicks, um, you can argue they're in a much better and more sustainable place in terms of their long-term rebuild with all the young assets they have, but they haven't been as good collectively as a team since when they were a borderline playoff team at that point. And it, it just... I still amazes me how quickly things went sideways, but when you look at just the pattern of what was happening both with Porzingis as a player that, as you noted rightly, he could never get on track in his early seasons, which I would attribute more than anything else to just, like, the battle between him and Melo, and that's always going to be sort of a complicated part of Melo's legacy. I mean, whether it was with Lynn or Porzingis, and obviously, I mean, with Lynn in particular, and with KP, you can make the argument that, Neither of those guys were ever going to be the heir apparent regardless, but that Mello just sort of shunned taking on a second guy a little bit, even though I know him and KP had a decent relationship. And I think more so than anything, it was that Mello's game wasn't really compatible to build up another young star, but it, it just, it's, There are always going to be questions of what if with Chris Stavs Porzingis, and you can only – you can look at the flashes where he was incredible and look like he had a chance to be the most unique big man in the NBA, one of the most unique big men in NBA history, and a guy who was truly, truly dominant versus what ultimately we got over a large sample size, which is someone who had these incredible flashes of brilliance but ultimately – couldn't sustain it. And for that reason, it's going to be really complicated. And I think, interestingly enough, his legacy as a Nick is ultimately going to be defined retroactively by what he does with Dallas. And if he goes on to be, and again, a lot of people would consider this highly unlikely at this point, but a top 10 player in the league and someone who wins multiple titles as the second best player on that Mavericks team, I think it'll, it'll change how he's viewed on the Knicks versus if he's just sort of a role player for them. Uh, obviously I, he'll be a little bit less memorable and it will look like just sort of another, like, I, I guess not a tragedy for the Knicks because he wasn't that good, but but just kind of a miss and someone who the Knicks hyped up as the next heir apparent. But even if they had kept him, never would have been great.
1: Yeah. You know, I'm actually, you know what, Gavin, let's, let's float this real quick because no better time than the present to talk about it real quick. I'm just curious what your thoughts are. Like, I know you hated the trade return at the time. And probably still do for, yeah. for him. Like the two picks, Dennis Smith, who's obviously not working out too well, DeAndre Jordan, who left, you know, whatever. Essentially it was Smith and the two picks. But I, I don't, I kind of find myself the more that this season goes on, in particular because like, it, so I know that Dallas is playing great. I know that Porzingis had a couple of games with Doncic out where he played well enough to get them a win pretty much on his own. Um, but all in all, like, I don't think he's having a fantastic first season there. And I know some of it, you know, I we obviously have to wait longer because some of it might still be working off whatever Rusty had from the ACL injury and stuff like that. But, I mean, his shooting percentages are pretty damn bad. And, like, honestly, if, if that would hold up over the course of the next few years, over the course of the rest of his career, whatever, I wouldn't have – been too happy had the Knicks kept him and given him a max deal anyway, because now I feel like as Knicks fans would have been the time, you know, let's say he came back. Right. And, you know, it was, he was still on this team and he was playing with, you know, Mitch and Frank and whoever else, you know, the team ended up with, I'm sure that free agency would have looked totally different, you know, this past season, had they still had Porzingis. Um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Like, even if they would have missed on Durant and Irving still, they would have signed definitely like different role players, probably would have invested more in the backcourt and wing and stuff like that. But like, I, you know, if, if he was still in New York and they still weren't doing that much better record-wise right now, I feel like the honeymoon period would have finally been over for Porzingis. if he was shooting the way that he was and he would have started becoming the guy that was culpable like, in the media and to fans and stuff for the team not doing well because we would have been like, look, you're not on a rookie deal anymore. You're not, like, a plus asset anymore. Now you're a max contract player. And if you're going to be shooting 40% and, like, whatever he's shooting now, like, 33% from three or maybe yeah. less than that. 34. Yeah, 34% from three, and he's shooting about 40% overall from the field, right? And, yeah. you know, I I feel like then as fans now we would be looking at it differently. And I know some people are like, Romanticizing it now, like being like, no, we would have loved it still, whatever. Like, why did we trade this guy? But I think when you start looking at the aggregate of this season so far, it's been fairly underwhelming for a guy that's on a rookie max contract. But, but that might just be me. Like, I'm trying to look at it objectively, but it's difficult to figure out exactly how it would have still worked if he was still in New
0: York. Yeah. No, so I think, I think it's complicated. Um, the first thing I'll, I'll say is I, I will say, Personally, I feel vindicated in saying at the time that wasn't the best deal the Knicks could have gotten. And I, I could be, I still totally acknowledge, that. I could have been completely off on like the idea like that the Knicks didn't do the research. It sounds like, I mean, all the reporting that's come out since is that they were shopping him for like a lot longer than it seemed like at, at the time, where it just seemed like it was this one day thing. And clearly that wasn't true. And the Knicks like did talk to a lot of teams and did go around the league, which almost makes it worse to me that this was the best deal that they could have come up with. And I know Again, the mentality at the time was that they thought they were getting Kevin Durant, and the most important thing was just to clear space. So, I, with understanding that, I will say the return was underwhelming, and I just I can't believe because he, here's the thing: it's sort of irrelevant, at least in terms of discussing the trade, how good Porzingis is now. What the only thing that's relevant is how he was perceived around the league at the time, and the fact that the Knicks couldn't bring back like one definitive contributor is it, it, frustrating. And obviously, like I mean, who knows what those picks turn into. But the fact of the matter is, I mean, I was saying at the time, I, I really didn't like DSJ. I didn't have high expectations for him. That's been proven right. Like the guy's a borderline NBA player at this point. And, and the two first round picks, like I said at the time. So this isn't me being retroactive are going to be near the bottom of the first round because not because of Porzingis, but because Luka Doncic is I- incredible. Um And I guess going to like the second part of that question, like a scenario where the Knicks don't trade him and everything's if not perfect, like at least stable enough that he could have stayed on the roster and the Knicks would have given him a big contract and he would have stayed on. His level of play in terms of purely himself obviously wouldn't have been up to that contract. I mean, the shooting numbers, especially he's a way worse free throw shooter than he's ever been. Every year of his career, 84%, 79, 79, and now down to seventy-two and a half this year. And, and that's that's what's really mystifying to me that on that team with all the floor spacing they have. Playing with one of the best passers to come into the league in the last decade, that he can't be more efficient is just sort of stunning to me. And I'm like you, I'm fascinated to see over a larger sample size um, whether or not that turns around. To his credit, he's played I think essentially every game for Dallas this year, 31 games on the season. But that that's sort of mystifying to me that he's not more efficient. My counter argument to that and the reason why I think he would have been worth keeping, even at a big number. Outside of a superstar at any position, I don't think there's a more valuable asset in the NBA right now than a big man that can be a credible threat from three. Obviously, he's not shooting great from there, but he's still someone who ultimately gets respect because he has that talent as a shooter and protect the rim at the other end. Like, look at what Brook Lopez did for Milwaukee. He completely changed the trajectory of Giannis Antetokounmpo's career and turned him from a guy who is clearly a top-ten talent to, I mean, objectively the best regular season player in the NBA, and you can say, all right, but Porzingis isn't quite that shooter. I I would counter, look at what he's done with Luka Doncic, taking a guy who is clearly the rookie of the year, clearly someone who was on track to be one of the best players in basketball, and and turning him as a 20-year-old, or 21-year-old, into an MVP candidate. And obviously there are more factors there. Luca got in shape. He he, he made a leap on his own. Dallas has shooting up and down the roster and really, really sharp players around him. They have one of the best coaches in the league in Rick Carlisle. But all I want to note is that with Porzingis on this Knicks team, I think it would make RJ Barrett a better player. I think it would make Frank Nilakina a better player. And I think you're, you're seeing a little bit of that with what Mike Miller is doing with this group right now, where when he puts shooting all on the floor and has guys face correctly, you see Frank being more aggressive. And I remember in the Wizards, I think our, our friend of the show, Tom Piccolo, tweeted out this clip of Frank getting right to the rim. And the reason he was able to do it was because the floor was perfectly spaced. So you you can certainly make the case that if Porzingis' shooting didn't pick up, that contract wouldn't be worth it. Teams would stop respecting him, and that would sort of fall apart. But all I will say is I think he's the type of guy, just because of the type of player that he is, would make everyone else on the floor better and guys like RJ and Frank and, and even Mitch would be a little bit further along in their development because they got to play with a guy like Porzingis.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I, I kind of, I can hear what you're saying. Kind of. I, I don't know. I, I, I think I'm just going to have to wait and see how things sh- shake out with this contract. Cause like when you're describing like, Brooke Lopez being the type to elevate a team, like that's true, but Brooke Lopez has been signed to pretty reasonably low deals for the last number of years. And I think that's where it really is the sticking point for me is like, I can see the utility of Porzingis as a player if all he ever turns into is someone who plays solid interior defense and can space the floor. And that's basically it, but he's getting paid like a complete player superstar. I mean, he's getting paid. Basically, I think his his rookie extension was worth as much as, like, Joel Embiid's was, even, or very close to it. Um, so in, in that respect, I'm like, that's, I think, the type of players you have to compare him to are his contemporaries getting paid, you know, about the same amount uh, on their rookie extensions. You know, it's the same deal with, like, uh, like, Ben Simmons or something, for example. I think Simmons actually got more because he had – uh, more accolades or whatever. So I think he got a little bit more on his rookie extension. But still, it's, you know, it, I think those are the type of guys you have to compare them to rather than high-functioning role players because that's what he's getting paid like. So I don't know. It'll be an interesting discussion for years to come, honestly. Um, and, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, what the Knicks can turn the draft picks into eventually. Like, I'd imagine that I... I'd be really surprised if the Knicks end up actually making selections with those Dallas picks. I feel like at some point or another, they're going to get traded uh, be it for an executive like Masai Ujiri maybe, or, you know, in in a deal for a player at some point, it it just, it doesn't seem like those picks were ever intended by the Knicks to be picks that they're going to make. Uh, But I guess we'll see how that goes in time as well. But at any rate, unless you have anything else to add, that was a pretty uh, lengthy discussion. I feel like we're going yeah, we, we, to our next player. I'm, I'm with you. Let's do it. Uh, so our next player coming in at number three, and this is what I was talking about debating merits versus uh, versus talent level and stuff like that, is Tyson Chandler came in at number three on our list. And maybe that will surprise some people as to who number two came out to be. I think number one is not going to be a surprise to anybody. Um, but we picked Tyson Chandler to be number two. He won Defensive Player of the Year uh, in that miraculous 12-13 season. And it was – or actually, I'm sorry, in the 11-12 season he won Defensive Player of the Year. And then the next season provided, I think, the same level of defense and probably should have gotten the Defensive Player of the Year again, but didn't. Uh, he did make an all-defensive team that year, though, obviously. Um, he made All-NBA in 11-12 as well, which was really impressive for him. That 11-12 season was, of course, the, the Linsanity year. That year he averaged uh 11 points per game, about 10 rebounds, Uh one-and-a-half block shots, shot 68% from the floor. The next year, during the 12-13 season, he was actually an all-star, Uh averaged 10 points, almost 11 rebounds, and a little over a block per game that year, and shot 64% from the floor. I would say, without a doubt, and I mean all apologies to his – his Dallas year when they won the championship, uh, with Dirk and Kid and everything. But I think that his two best years of his career easily were with the Knicks. Um, you know, it, Chandler, it's like, it, so he played three seasons for the Knicks and like he was never, never in his career really has he ever been more than like a high level role player. Uh, but in terms of when he was with the Knicks, he was, I mean, he was an actual force, uh, especially on defense. Uh, You know, he's kind of like, in many ways, what I think we hope Mitchell Robinson will turn into sort of an upgraded version of, you know, of maybe a a Tyson Chandler type that actually blocks more shots because, like, Chandler, despite being a a very, very, very good defensive player, was never actually, like, an elite shot blocker. He was just, like, an elite shot alterer. Um, So, you know, I think that at least for me, I'm hoping that Mitch eventually turns into more of a Tyson Chandler type, uh, but maybe with a more varied offensive game and with better actual block numbers. But uh, I don't know. I love Chandler, Gavin. I, I don't know how, like it's, I look back on him really loving what he, con- what he contributed to the team. And, uh, you know, I, during the regular season, especially, I mean, he was like the quarterback on defense for this team. He kept, he kept, you know, a Dan Tony team respectable on defense, which is impressive in and of itself. Uh, and, you know, then with Woodson, you know, essentially played that same type of role that Mitch often plays now where he was, he was the first and last line of defense, you know, on most of those teams, uh, because you had him out there with a bunch of guys that were not elite tier defenders. Like Melo played the four that whole 12-13 season, basically. Uh, you often had him out there with, you know, lineups with JR Smith and, uh, Jason Kidd, who was still solid enough on defense in his final season, but was not like a, a crazy defensive guard, you know. Uh, Raymond Felton, who was not known for his defense. Um, Steve Novak, who literally could not defend anything. I mean, basically, if you look up and down that 12-13 roster, it was not chock full of defenders at all for the Knicks. So, yeah, I don't know. I I look back very fondly on what Chandler was able to do. And I think that a lot of the best season in recent Knicks history is owed to Chandler uh, holding down the defensive fort as much as he did and providing the rebounding and all those intangibles that he did.
0: Yeah, I am I mean, no argument for me. And, I mean, you can just go to the stats to see how he transformed the Knicks. 22nd in defensive efficiency in 2010-11, one season at Chandler later in 11-12. They got all the way up to fifth. A lot of people forget, I mean, obviously he was in a limited role, but what he did offensively was pretty amazing at the time. Shot 68% from the field in that 11-12 season. That was the third highest mark in league history at the time. Only Wilt Chamberlain had ever shot better. And it was a testament, I mean, that season. And then I want to just I want to double check those field goal percent. Yeah, so yeah, 68 in eleven twelve, and then 64 in 2012-13. And, I mean, a testament to Chandler, but also the shooting the Knicks were able to put around him and, and sort of run the best possible version of that offense where you have a rim roller and you have all these guys who can hit threes. And it puts – I mean, we always – we don't talk about it a ton on this podcast, but we did, I think, more so last year when Mitch's lob threat was really hitting its peak. But vertical spacing and what that does to a defense, and when you have that and shooting on the perimeter, it's so, so deadly. So he was really, I, I just think, the perfect piece on both ends of the floor for the Knicks, becoming the first Knicks ever to win Defensive Player of the Year. And in my mind, I mean, he essentially did for the Knicks defensively what Melo did offensively, and you combine that with an incredible supporting cast, and you have the best Knicks team in recent memory. So that's really everything I have to say about Tyson Chandler. Um Amari Stoudemire, number two on this list, uh, the greatest Jewish basketball player of all time. And I think maybe to this day the initial 40-game version of him It is still possibly my favorite Nick of my lifetime.
1: Yeah, I wouldn't fault you for that either. I mean, it was certainly, it was, it was a hell of a time that year. I mean, even if you, even if you don't just use that first, you know, 40 game or whatever, like pre mellow sample for Amari that year, I mean, his whole season as a whole, that 10 11 season was just amazing. I mean, he averaged, he averaged 25.3 points a game. 8.2 8.2 rebounds, 2.6 assists, which ended up being a career high for him. And, honestly, he was never even close to that. Um, he, was, he was doing so much for that team. He averaged almost two blocks a game that season, too. I mean, it, which also was a career high for him. Or, no, I'm sorry, almost a career high, but right at the highest output he's ever had in his career. Um, and, you know, he did it all in, in 37 minutes a night. He shot over 50% from the floor. He shot 44% from three, albeit on very low attempts. Uh, but honestly, if if things were different and, you know, if, if that Amari was transplanted into today's NBA, I feel like he'd be shooting threes at about the rate that we see Julius Randle shooting them now and probably connecting on more of them. Because I, I actually really always thought, despite the fact that the elbow jumper was kind of Amari's bread and butter, I, I thought during those years with the Knicks that he could have, Especially that first year, he could have stepped out to three, uh, more often than he did and probably made them at a pretty good clip. But, uh, yeah, that season, that season was so fun. And especially, like you said, that first half season where he stepped the 30 game streak mark, um, of 13 straight games, if I'm not mistaken. No, it was, uh, I
0: just count. it was a uh, nine, nine in a row. Oh, is it nine? Okay. Yeah. I
1: don't know. I thought 13, but that would have been even more impressive, but <laughs> nine was still impressive, but, Um, yeah, just so much fun, you know, and he was basically like, it it was like watching in a weird way the Phoenix Suns, but without Steve Nash and with Amari somehow has to do more than he did on the Suns, (laughs) but he did it like, he didn't just do it admirably, he did it fantastically and was getting real buzz for, I mean, if, if things had carried on the way that they did before, you know, if they hadn't traded for Melo and, And, you know, Amari just played the whole season out with Gallinari and Chandler and um, Felton and Landry Fields and all those guys who were all just, like, very good role players that year. And he had continued playing the way that he did, and the Knicks finished anywhere around or above 500, like they ultimately ended up doing to end the season. I think he might have legitimately gotten the MVP that year because – nobody was playing basketball like Kilo was that year. I, I And that extends all the way to, you know, LeBron, Wade, Bosh, who had their struggles to start the season. Everybody always forgets that about the, the Heat era. But, I mean, they started off, they, they struggled quite a bit, and they they only came out to a two seed that year because I forget what their record was to start the season. It was like 9-13 and 13 or something like that. People were, like, freaking out, saying that the big three wasn't going to work out and all that. Obviously, that – that never came to pass, but um, just like the the way that Amari came out of the gates and right from the start and all the way through that season played the way that he did, it's one of the best, I think, you could maybe argue the best individual season, maybe other than Melo's 12-13 of the decade for the Knicks, I think.
0: Yeah, no, zero argument for me, and you, you, you go back to that. 30-point streak, and it very famously culminated in that uh quote-unquote loss to the Celtics where he had 39 points, 10 boards, 15 of 22 from the field, 9 of 11 from the free-throw line. And, and to me, and it was funny, I was listening to an interview with the uh, Safdie brothers recently who directed Uncut Gems, which is an excellent movie, and if you haven't gone yet, I highly recommend if you can handle a little bit of anxiety, you, you go see it because it's great. And, and And they were talking about how they ended up having Kevin Garnett star in that movie. Actually, initially, Amari was the guy set to star in that movie, and I think um, the scheduling didn't work out, and ended up being made a couple years later than initially anticipated. But they brought in Kevin Garnett for an interview to see if he can act, to see if it, the personalities would click, to see if he would work for the movie. And, and like Garnett, I think was recounting um, separately on like Jimmy Kimmel's show and just saying, yeah, like literally the first thing they asked me was, "Did Amari's shot count at the end of that game?" And I think that. One, like, sort of perfectly sums up that error of Knicks basketball, but it also just sort of sums up in my mind how meaningful that specific moment in time was for Knicks fans. I think it was on par with just about everything we saw, like the initial start in 2012-13 where the Knicks were sort of, in part, playing a really big role in changing basketball, taking a crazy amount of threes, playing mellow at the four, on par with Jeremy Lin, which obviously is one of the sports stories of the decade, I mean, one of my favorite sports stories of all time, but... The Knicks, the Knicks meant something for that run, and it wasn't just like Amari was putting up empty stats. They won the first eight of those 30-point games, and the last one, they probably should have won against the Celtics. I mean, you hear people say all the time with modern replay technology, stat shot would have counted. And when you talk about his potential as a three-point shooter, you, you saw it on that shot, which was, if I remember correctly, quite a bit beyond the arc. And the fact of the matter is, I'm going back through it now, he hadn't taken a three-pointer in essentially the Knicks' last 20 games before that. And for him to, in that moment, having such an incredible night, to feel that hot and have that kind of confidence to say, you know what, yeah, I'm just going to jack this one up from 25 feet and hit it against that Celtics team that had tortured the Knicks time and time again over the years, it was just, it created, or I think it would have created such a good vibe that... Maybe the Knicks ultimately didn't have the talent for this, but I think it really could have pushed them on a run where they ended up being one of the top five or six teams in the East that year. And Amari, as you noted, credibly, Could have been a threat to an MVP. Obviously, everything changed with the mellow trade, and that season didn't necessarily go off the rails, but Amari was never the same guy. Like You look at the postseason he had that year. He had an incredible first game against the Celtics where he had 28 and 11, and then from that point forward, 2 for 9, 2 for 8, 5 for 20, and that was functionally the end of Amari being one of the best players in the league on the New York Knicks. But for that one stretch of time... He was the best player in the league and the Knicks were playing like one of the best teams in basketball and it was just incredibly fun. And again, you, you look at everything through these blue and orange colored glasses where things really didn't go well for the Knicks by and large over the course of this decade. And I think for that reason, that 10 game stretch will always stand out to me as like, wow, that was really meaningful. And it, it, it was, it was real. The Knicks were really, yeah. really good for that amount of time.
1: I think also when we're talking about placing Amari this high on the list I think and I think this will come up when we talk about our obvious number one who uh, spoiler alert it's Melo, um because <laughs> who else could it be but you know it, I think that he deserves some credit to in an off the court sense of really putting it on himself to try to bring the Knicks back like literally even said it right after his intro press conference came out stood out in front of the you know in front of the uh uh facade outside of Madison Square Garden, had the perfect picturesque moment where he had his arms out and the Knicks hat on and said, the Knicks are back. Um, He tried his damnedest to lure LeBron here as well, I think. Um, And ultimately, I think he was the factor that got Melo here, who, you know, good or bad, however you feel about the trade and how Melo conducted himself or whatever, Melo was without a doubt the best player that the Knicks had this past decade. And that's owed in large part to Amari as well and the kind of trend that he started of making New York at least for a few years cool again and a place that people wanted to play and wanted to win in. Um, so I, I think he definitely deserves some credit for that as well, for being the first star in forever to really take a leap and say, I want to play in New York. I want to win in New York. And even though he didn't get to fully... Realized that mission, and obviously the injuries were just brutal for him. Um, he played 78 games that first year, then 47 the year after, 29 games in that uh, fantastic 12-13 season. He really didn't have much of an impact in it. 13-14, uh, he played 65 games, and then 59 uh, the year after when he, he played partly for New York and then partly for Dallas after New York bought him out of the final year of his contract. Um, but was never quite the same after that first year, even in 11-12 when he was still uh somewhat healthy during the lockout season and played the 47 games. Um You know, his legacy is always going to be complicated by those injuries, but I think just the, the way that he came to New York and the weight that he put on himself, the way that he embraced the city and the city embraced him, I, I think is why you can comfortably still put him ahead of other guys like Chandler or like Porzingis even that maybe arguably had similar impacts, but And, you know, even at like better salary points and stuff, like probably played to their contracts better than Amari did. But I don't know that I just always felt a certain love for Amari just for the way that he came to the city and the way that he represented himself and New York while he was
0: here. Yep. Um, I'm with you. You summed it up perfectly. All right. Number one, we already said it. It is Carmelo Anthony. Uh, ultimately, could not have been anyone else. I mean, just clearly the best player on the Knicks over the last decade, and I don't think it is particularly close. He will always have a complicated legacy as a Knick. I think it was about a year ago, Alex. We did that whole podcast on whether or not the Knicks would ultimately retire his jersey. I think I, I came down on the side, which surprised me, because throughout his career, like I I prided myself on being a little bit of a mellow hater and was always saying, okay, look, like ultimately he's not going to be the guy to get you there. I mean, obviously the latter part of his tenure with the Knicks was really messy in a lot of different ways. And you ultimately, you have to give the guy some credit. I mean, I'm talking purely from an off-the-court perspective of similar to Amari, sort of shouldering the burden of being the number one guy in New York. Ultimately, outside of that 12-13 season, not really having a particularly great supporting cast around him. The Knicks, I mean, really for the latter half of his career, refusing to put a great supporting cast around him. And and that, you could again argue, is is further complicated by the amount of money he took on his final contract. But at the end of the day, I think I've almost evolved my thinking on that a little bit and said, you know what, I mean, he deserved to get paid that much. Or if the Knicks were willing to pay him that much, he definitely should have taken it and, there are plenty of other NBA teams who have had to pay superstars that amount of money and have still figured out a way to build good teams around them. But it, it just makes for such an interesting conversation. There's so much nuance to it, both in terms of Melo the player, Melo off the court, what the Knicks did to support him or didn't do to support him. And I'm interested to see, I mean, a year later than when we sort of had this initial conversation on him, uh, where, where you come down on Carmelo Anthony and, and what his legacy is with the New York Knicks.
1: Yeah, it's, it's always going to be complicated. I think you and I have had a couple of mellow discussions in this first year and change of doing this pod, but I mean, his, his legacy is so interesting because depending on who you talk to, I mean, I think, so I think at this point, most people have kind of just come around to appreciate it for what it was, you know, and, and can, appreciate what he brought to the team while still acknowledging that he had some flaws, especially in those last few years and, you know, different things like that. But at the time, you know, when it was getting time for him to get traded, there was, there was a lot of, you know, polarizing opinions about him in like the Knicks community about, you know, whether he was uh, good enough to lead a team and, you know, whether he wanted to lead a team, you know, if he had the, the alpha mentality that was necessary. Um, and, and, you know, I think those are all valid concerns. I think the one thing that definitely sticks with me through Melo's tenure is like, he definitely did play best when he wasn't tasked with being like the guy from a locker room perspective. Um, I think that was most accentuated in that twelve thirteen season when they surrounded him with tons and tons of veterans, you know, who were all in their mid to late 30s who, you know, like Kidd and Kurt Thomas and um Rasheed Wallace, you know, who was a great, I think, locker room leader that year, despite not playing that many games. Um, You know, Camby and and guys of that nature, you know, to kind of keep him, keep him so that he could just focus on himself on the court rather than having to be this like emotional leader in the locker room as well. Um, so that, you know, that's part of his legacy too. But all in all, I look back on his time fondly with the Knicks. I mean, it, we've come back to it like 10 times now, but the the twelve thirteen season from Mello I thought was one of the best individual seasons but probably the best individual Knicks season I've ever seen um, led the league in scoring with 28.7 points a game, averaged about seven rebounds, uh, two and a half assists, which was, you know, on the high end for him. Uh, he shot 45% overall, which was one of his highest percentages that he shot in his career and 38% from three on six attempts per game kind of ushered in. It, it's, It's always underrated, but like that Knicks team kind of ushered in like the Warriors, you know, three point pace and space era that, you know, everybody looks at now is kind of like the gold standard of what everybody's been trying to accomplish in the NBA for the last like seven years. Uh, that was kind of started by the Knicks, uh, unintentionally to a degree, but they, they like set records that year for most three pointers attempted and, you know, a lot of players, both individually and, you know, team wide, uh, set career records for three pointers made and taken. And Melo was a huge part of that as well. I mean, because he was like kind of a, kind of a pioneer stretch four unintentionally. It was a position you never really wanted to play. And that bore out over the coming years for the Knicks, uh, after that, because, you know, Melo just didn't, he didn't like the the wear and tear of playing at the four even though it was a position that best suited him from a defensive standpoint so you could put more defenders out there with him. But, I don't know, that's, again, like all part of his complicated legacy too. He had so much greatness, but some of it he kind of just stumbled into and the Knicks just stumbled into. Some of it was very, very well earned. Um, But I, I think the things that you can never really fault him for are when the Knicks got to the playoffs, he was the one guy that always gave 110% in the playoffs and, you know, put up exactly the numbers and performances you expected out of a guy who you wanted to be the alpha on your team. Um, and I, you know, whatever you want to say about his, his insistence on getting the most money and whatever I, you know, I understand the money was part of it, but I, I do think that he always wanted to play and win in New York as well. and, That was always kind of a big factor for me, too, as far as, uh, you know, liking him or not liking him or whatever. And then lastly, he, I always thought, represented himself very well and represented the city of New York very well uh, in, you know, interviews and to the media and um, just, like, as an outward presence, he was always even keel, never lost his temper, um, would do media availability every single day and be like the lightning rod, which... You know, it's kind of something that we see from guys like Marcus Morris now on the team that, you know, Mello was always willing to talk to the media after the game if it meant sparing someone else, even after a tough loss or whatever. Um, And those are things that I always kind of appreciated about him, just from a general standpoint. But on the court, there's not even a question, even if we were, even if we only took the 12-13 season into account, that alone would probably be enough to get him the number one spot on this list. But he had all in all, pretty damn good body of work over the course of about half of this decade with the Knicks.
0: Yeah. Um, Yeah. (laughs) And now total agreement with everything you said. The one thing I'll add to it is I, I thought actually one of the better takes on Melo's legacy came from a guy who a lot of Knicks fans aren't particularly fond of in Bill Simmons, where he wrote this whole article, I think right around 2015 or 2016 on Carmelo Anthony and just comparing him it's probably even earlier. It's probably more like 2014 or 13 because it's when Melo was still sort of close to the peak of his powers. And just kind of comparing him to Dirk Nowitzki and essentially saying that Melo was the type of superstar that if you put the perfect team around him with the right kind of guys in the right year where there wasn't a super team competing for a title, which has obviously been the reality of the NBA over the last, most of the last decade, he could lead that team to a championship. And the case was basically if you replace Melo with Dirk on that 2011 Mavs team, they still could have won a title. And, and I think, interestingly enough, the 12-13 team sort of proves that premise. Because that year, where Melo, I mean, he had that three game stretch where he had 50 points, 42, 40, and finished third for MVP, it was clearly amongst the five best players in the world. And then in the playoffs came out and proved it and was really pretty spectacular for the most part against two great defenses in the Celtics and the Pacers. And I think what my takeaway from that was is ultimately, at the peak of his powers, he was good enough to get it done. He just needed the right group of teammates. And that 12-13 team was sort of the facsimile of what that needed to be without those guys being quite good enough to get there. They were all just a little bit too old, a little bit too untested, a little bit too... Gun shy in the biggest moments that ultimately define the team and whether or not they could make an NBA finals run. And look, obviously they would have run into the heat regardless. I don't think they had enough to get by them. But if you had put a Mavericks like infrastructure on Mellon, all those guys were just 10% better. I think ultimately the Knicks could have won a title with Carmelo Anthony as the centerpiece. And when you're having these conversations or, or at least come darn close to it, I, I mean, I think that's ultimately what matters. So Alex, I'm going to, I'm going to let you tack on, but that's, that's kind of my last point on all of this. Well, you know, I was
1: actually going to say one of the greatest what ifs I think in Knicks history is what if Mello finished the dunk over Hibbert and the Knicks won that game six, brought it back to the garden for a game seven. I think there's pretty much no doubt in my mind the Knicks would have won game seven at home if they were able to force it because they had been down, uh, was it three, one, or I think they were down three, one in that series to the Pacers and they'd come back, made it three, two. And then if they would have, um, you know, won that game in Indiana in game six, then they would have forced the game seven. They would have had all the momentum. I think they would have won it and advanced to the Easter conference finals against the heat. And I think honestly, I mean, I know you just said you don't think they would have won if they would have run into the Heat. I think they would have beaten them. And and that's not, I'm not even, like, being a homer about it. Like, the the Knicks that season, and honestly, like, most, uh, well, other than, okay, obviously you could say, like, the 11-12 uh, playoffs, they did play the Heat, and they got pretty soundly beat, but the Knicks were, like, so ridiculously injured in that playoffs that, you know, that was the one that we were talking about on the last show, I think, where, they had to start Mike Bibby for part of the Easter Conference first round of the playoffs. Like, you know, that's just unheard of and stupid. Um, You know, no playoff team should have to start freaking Mike Bibby at point guard. But they just they got so ravished by injuries that that was the only option they had. Um But like, uh I just totally lost my train of thought. Mike Bibby just totally killed yeah, me. Sorry, they could have they could have beaten the heat. Oh, yeah, they could have beaten the heat. I think that 12-13 year, they absolutely could have beaten the heat because they had their number that whole season and really for years prior when they were at relatively full health, they had the Heat's number. And I think as long as Woodson wouldn't have gotten in his own way against the Heat and stuck with the principles that they were sticking with, which he didn't against Indiana, which cost them a couple games because he Amari got cleared to play and he was immediately like, okay, I'm going to start Amari. Cause we have to go big. The East is big, man. Like we have to go big against Indiana and that just didn't work because they hadn't been doing that all season. But if they would have stuck to their principles, played mellow at the four, brought Amari in off the bench, um, and, you know, played Tyson, and if Tyson would have played up to the level he played during the regular season, if JR could have refound his form and played even at a, you know, 90% of what he played at during the regular season, I, I think they could have actually beaten the Heat. They could have made the finals that year. Whether they would have beaten, who is it that the – it was at the Spurs that year. Whether they could have beaten the Spurs is another story, but that very same season, the Knicks, I think, they at least split with the Spurs uh in 12-13. They may have even swept them during the regular season. I just think that the Knicks ran into the one team that specifically could beat them in that, that playoffs, which was the Pacers, but the Knicks were pretty well equipped to beat almost any other team in the NBA that year in those playoffs. And I think that even includes the heat. Um, So that Mello not finishing that dunk has always been one of my greatest what ifs. And you could even, you could even argue like, what if Garnett had never tried to pull his arm out of its socket either, because that severely limited Mello for the rest of those playoffs as well. And he played through it. And I mean, he troopered right the fuck through that um, and still put on some amazing performances, but you know, what if he was, what if his arm wasn't hurting that badly when he was going up for that dunk, you know, and then he could have maybe had a little more extension, which was all he would have needed to finish that because it was literally like, got caught like on Roy Hibbett's fingertips, like, and his hand fully flexed back and everything else to, to block that dunk, you know, if Mel had just that little bit of extra uh, hammer on that dunk, would it have worked out differently? I don't know. It's just such a such a crazy thing to think about that the Knicks, you know, it always gets looked at as, oh, they only went to a second-round exit, but it's just a couple things have gone differently. I think it could have been a Knicks finals run that year and maybe even a championship, and that would have been crazy. But, of course, we all know the story after that. You know, they they let that core kind of break up. They make the Bargnani trade trying to make a splash, which made a splash in the exact wrong way that you would want it to. Um, and then eventually, and then Melo started to decline some. Although actually the, the 13, 14 year was arguably as good, if not better for Melo. Um, just without as good of a, a win-loss record. But then Melo starts to decline after that and, you know, the rest is kind of history. So.
0: Yep. It's, it's an interesting what-if and, uh, one that Nick Sands will talk about forever. One thing they can't debate, Carmelo Anthony, clearly the best player of the next decade, who will be the best of the 2020s. That's a podcast for another day. Uh, for Alex Wolf, I'm Gavin Shaw. Uh, you don't have to wait long to hear us again. The Knicks play the Blazers tonight, and we will have a recap for you. Until then, be good. Enjoy your New Year's Day.